I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. The justices are out until mid-January, and they announced late last week that later this term, they will hear three cases involving efforts to subpoena President Trump's financial records. But to tide you over until the new year, please enjoy my recent conversation with law professor Jack Goldsmith about his new book, In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Jack. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book that came out this fall, In Hoffa's Shadow. It's about Chucky O'Brien, one of the leading suspects in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance and presumed murder. So it just so happens that O'Brien is your stepfather. So since your expertise is national security law and presidential power, what led you to write this book? Um, I was led to write the book having nothing to do – it had nothing to do with my intellectual and academic interests. Um, as I explain in the book – my stepfather has, for 44 years, been accused, as you said, of being the of picking up Hoffa and driving him to his death. Um, he was – I was very close to him as a teenager. He was a great father. But we had a falling out for about 20 years, and when we got back together when I was in my 40s, during our conversations, I became convinced, at least as an initial matter, a presumptive matter, that he actually wasn't involved in the in the – in the killing of Hoffa. So I decided about eight years ago, I said to him, if you basically tell me everything you know, I will try to figure out what I can and try to give you a fairer shake than others have done in terms of his involvement in the disappearance. And that led me down a long and winding path in which I talked a lot about the Hoffa disappearance and a lot of other things as well. So how did you go about you know, investigating um, what happened to Hoffa? So that was a big challenge because there is just enormous piles of misinformation, 44 years <laughs> misinformation uh, that's been spewed about Hoffa and the disappearance. So I started with Chucky. I talked to him for a long time about Hoffa. He was intimately close to Hoffa. He was his right-hand man for about 20 years. Many people thought that he was his illegitimate son. They were so close. spent a lot of time talking to him, but I also corroborated Everything he said as best I could. I had access to thousands of pages of government documents on the Hoffa disappearance. And perhaps most importantly, I spoke to and spent a lot of time with all of the major FBI investigators on the case, starting in the 1970s and going up through the 2000s, and including the people that are on the case today. So I, I, I did a pretty thorough scrub of the Hoffa disappearance. Whatever else I did in the book, I think it's the most comprehensive and um, fair-minded assessment of what happened. And so it's still an active investigation today? Technically, it's an active investigation. Um, it's 44 years old. They're not. I know the people on the case. They're not spending a lot of time on the case, but technically it's still an open investigation. The U.S. attorney in Detroit recently said that – recently implied that he was wrapping the case up and would have more to say about it. I think that, that they're going to sometime – in the near future, close the case and tell the world what they know. And I think when they do so, it will present a somewhat different picture than has been accepted in the in the kind of conventional wisdom for the last 44 years. The, the FBI, I talk about this in my book, the government had an early theory of the case uh, that had my stepfather driving Hoffa to his disappearance. They basically rejected that theory about 20 years ago 
and came to have another theory based on new investigations, new surveillance, new informant information. But the whole world still thinks the original theory is correct. So I, I hope that they correct the record. And I read that a few years ago, um, the FBI was was going to issue some sort of letter exonerating um, your stepfather, but then that didn't end up happening. Do you know anything about that? I do. I was there. Um, they, in 2013, the U.S. attorney in Detroit and um, the FBI director, um, through their subordinates, but approved by them, said that if Chucky talked to them candidly and told uh, about what he knew during about his involvement, his parents, where he was and what he did, that if he told the truth, that they would give him a letter exonerating him and stating that he was no longer a target or subject of the investigation because, as I just said, they didn't believe that he was, and they wanted to – they pledged and claimed they wanted to try to clear him in the case because of the misrepresentations about his involvement for 20 – for 30, 35, 40 years by that point. Chucky did what they asked. He spent four hours with them in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit. He answered every question. They told us later, soon after, that they thought he answered truthfully. They told us that they were going to give him the letter. They said it was imminent, and then the letter never came, and they decided in the end not to do it. And so they basically pulled out the rug from underneath him. They didn't follow through with their promise. That seems pretty unfair. Now, of course, the the recent Netflix film, The Irishman, plays out one of the theories of Hoffa's demise, which is, of course, that um, that your stepfather did drive the car, and then um, that Frank uh, Sheeran, uh, who was a uh, hitman, an associate of of uh, Jimmy Hoffa, that he um, that he killed him. So, have you seen the movie? I have. So, uh, what did you think of the uh, the portrayal? Uh, the whole thing was entirely fictional. First of all, Sharon never was a hitman. He, there's no evidence that he killed anyone. Um, he was definitely a, a criminal, and he was involved in crimes, and he was in, involved in conspiring to commit murders. But he almost certainly never killed anyone. The whole Sheeran confession is a fiction, as uh, I've explained in some other writings, not in my book. Um, there's zero evidence that he was there. He himself said on surveillance tape early after the disappearance that he wasn't even in Detroit that day. He gave the FBI evidence to prove his innocence back then, which is why the FBI never took him seriously as a suspect. And then there are a whole bunch of things about uh, Sharon's confession that end up in the movie that are just implausible to the point of ridiculous the way the murder murder was supposedly um, conducted and the like. So I mean it's a it's a as for the movie as art, I thought parts of it were great. I thought uh, parts of it were not so great. I thought it was too long. Yeah, but, <laughs> three and a half but, hours but in, is pretty long. <laughs> but, in, but but independent of its value as art, its value as history is um, close to zero. So what do you think happened to Hoffa? Is is he under Giant Stadium? I don't think so. This is speculation. It's speculation based on um, a lot of research, talking to a lot of people, and knowledge of what the FBI currently thinks. And I don't, I can't assess their evidence, but I can tell you what they think. Basically, the conspiracy was, as we thought for forty, as everyone has thought for forty-four years, the National Organized Crime Syndicate was threatened by, was worried that Hoffa was going to uh, disclose their intimate ties to the Teamsters Union. He was threatening to do that. They gave him many chances to keep his mouth shut. He didn't. And so it was from a very high up, probably the National Commission, he was ordered to be killed. 
But this idea that it was people from the East, either from New Jersey or Philadelphia, who came in to do it has been debunked inside the government. And they currently think that it was a local job by um, you know, a local captain, a local sort of mid-level guy named Vito Giacalone, and that the murder was actually committed by someone who's no longer alive, but who at the time was just a very low-level, uh, practically new member in the Detroit outfit, and who rose to prominence thereafter. The bottom line is they think it was a local job. They think that the body was disposed of, or they don't know what they, they, the truth is they have no idea what happened to the body. There's no evidence of it. They thought it was buried in a certain place in Detroit. It may have been destroyed or incinerated right after the disappearance. The truth is there's no evidence that I know of about what happened to Hoppe. Well, we'll tweet out a link to uh, to your book so listeners can check it out in Hoffa's Shadow. So now turning to your career, you clerked for three different judges early on in your career. So let's start with the Iran-U.S. Claims t- Tribunal. Can you tell me a little bit about that court and the, the judge that you clerked for? Sure. I, clerk, I, ch- I clerked for George Aldrich, uh, who was a uh, well-regarded senior American diplomat for decades he was one of nine judges on the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal. This is a tribunal set up after, uh, as part of the release of the uh, American hostages in, in Iran, their, their release in 1981. And basically, it was a part of a deal to uh, resolve disputes between Americans and Iranians growing out of the Iranian Revolution, expropriation, breach of contract, things like that. So uh, it was a novel international institution at the time. Believe it or not, it's still in business, even though it doesn't have much business. And it was basically international commercial arbitration, and it was a lot of fun because it was in The Hague, which is a great place. So, um, yeah, tell me about living in in The Hague. Well, I mean, I just come off of a Supreme Court clerkship where I had worked very, very hard for, for a year. And this job was not nearly as demanding. <laughs> and um, part of the perks of of having this job was that quasi diplomatic status, which meant that all of the clerks purchased nice cars at uh, as a huge discount. So I basically spent a lot of time driving around Europe that year. Oh, that's nice. Well, moving on to your more traditional clerkships, which it sounds like came before this one. Uh, so first up, you you clerked for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. So tell me about your time clerking for him. So it was a great clerkship. Um, Judge Wilkinson was a young judge at the time. He's not a young judge anymore. <laughs> uh, and he it was just a great, great experience. He was very close to his clerks. Living in Charlottesville was great. He heavily engaged in our work. I, my writing and legal analysis improved enormously, sort of watching him. He's a great writer. And we became good friends. He's been a mentor to me for, I guess, uh, 30 years since then. He's, and so it was just a wonderful clerkship. And so then you went on to clerk uh, for Justice Anthony Kennedy at the Supreme Court. So what was your favorite memory of that clerkship? Uh, my favorite memory? That's a tough one. It was a, it was a very hard and demanding year. Um, you know, the, my favorite memory was it's a very special place, and it's a very special place to clerk. So I guess it's just but I had this office for a year that kind of looked out over the front facade of the Supreme Court over towards the Congress. And to be a young kid sitting in that building, looking across at the other branch of government and being involved with 
the nine justices and 32 or three other really, really smart clerks uh, on some hard cases. The whole thing was kind of a thrill. Um, I don't I can't think of any particular thrill that stands out. It was tough. It was a tough year. That was it was hard work. <laughs> uh, so much, much of your career has been in uh the academic world, but you you served as the head of DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel during the height of the war on terror. So that must have been a slow time, right? It definitely was not a slow time. It was a very, very difficult time. I was only there for 10 months. Um, there were a lot of enormously difficult problems that I did my best to try to deal with. Um, it was very challenging. So after your stint in government, you returned to the academy, where you've spent most of your career. Uh, so what's your favorite class to teach? My favorite class to teach right now is federal courts, which I've been teaching for only three years. Uh, I used to teach civil procedure, which is related, but federal courts is harder and more interesting. Um, and the reason I like it is because it's just inherently great course. It's very important stuff. Uh, it's it's hard. The materials are hard, very challenging. And for me, it's kind of new. I'm so it's kind of fresh to me as opposed to some of the national security and foreign relations law stuff that I've been doing for decades. So that's my favorite class right now. Now, a lot of our listeners are law students and young lawyers. So do you have any reading recommendations for them? Of course, aside from your books. <laughs> uh, you mean for entering law school or for um... just as they as they you know enter the practice of law? Um, you know, I think that I, I, there are so many great biographies of American legal history, Mike Klarman's books, uh, so many great judicial biographies. Um, my colleague Noah Feldman's book about the Supreme Court in the 50s, Ted White's book on Oliver Wendell Holmes. I think reading about important and outstanding jurists or learning about American legal history, whether it's on the public constitutional law side or on the private law side, I think I, that's what I would recommend. All right. Now, one final question, something that I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? That is a tough one, and I could give a million different answers. <laughs> but I think what I really like to know is to have a conversation with Justice Scalia and to try to ask him when he died – um, he it seemed like he was in the middle of rethinking his commitment to the Chevron doctrine and a whole bunch of other related um, uh, administrative law doctrines, but especially Chevron. So I guess I would have loved to have interviewed him on that. That was obviously a doctrine associated with him, even mm -hmm. though he didn't invent it. And it was a doctrine that he for which he was the he was the strongest proponent of the doctrine and the most intelligent one. And he also at the end of his life seemed to be rethinking it. And I just, you know, I. I would have liked to have known where his thinking was and where he was going. Yeah, that would be really interesting to to kind of probe his mind on that since, you know, of course, he he wrote the hour decision. Uh, so to see where, you know, where he went from that in the, the mid-90s to towards the end of his life, uh, right. seeming to want to move away from that. Right. Well, Jack, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery.
Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Aaliyah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.